Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men, a podcast about tabletop war games, tabletop role-playing games, and board games. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm the co-host. You can call me Ed. My pronouns are they and them. And today we're talking about Mathrox, or as they're commonly known, Dice. Clickety-clack. We'll be talking about the history of dice, some of the superstitions involved, some of our favorite sets. Like, there's a lot to talk about with dice. There's a lot of dice. We all own a lot of dice. And you can never have too many, despite what your significant other or the person at the game store says. Never heard the person at the game store say that you have too many dice. They always say, oh, you want another set of dice? Here, let me show them to you. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had them tell me that I've got too many either. But surprisingly, it has been about 12 months since I last bought a die. Yeah, I was very tempted to get some dice the other day when I went to a game store. I did not. I, I held held my ground. Some I think I might be regretting that now. But before we get onto the topic of dice, however, we have a segment on the podcast called uh, what? Last week in hobby? Something like that. Whatever. We we just talk about what we've done recently in hobby stuff. Uh, I'll go first this time. I've managed to play some games recently. I played a few rounds of Guillotine, which is a lovely little card game, um, two to five players, fun. Uh, I got to play that with some family members over the holidays. Also played Ticket to Ride for the first time over the holidays. Very much enjoyed that. And for Christmas, I received Dune Imperium. That's fun. So at some point, I'm going to have to play that which will be excellent. Is that like the remake of the original Dune game, or is this a different game entirely? I can't remember. There's so many Dune games, I can't seem to keep track of all of them. I think it's the one that's a different game entirely. It came out last year, and is supposed to be quite good. It's the one that has the higher score on Board Game Geek, so that's going to be nice. Also had a D&D session last week, so yeah, that's been going good. They barely survived fighting some people. The tank was at one hit point. Oh boy. For the final couple rounds of combat, which means to me that the combat was sufficiently dangerous. How about you, Ed? What have you done in hobby recently? Uh, pretty much nothing. Still having kind of a rough week. All I really seem to have been able to do is play the remakes of Age of Empires. Age of Empires 1 is underwhelming. Age of Empires 2 was somehow made even more perfect. Age of Empires 3 is improved, but still very problematic. I don't really know who thought that game was a good idea in the first place. That's about it. I did see you posted a finished miniature that you had been painting. I don't know what day that was. I had been on a roll with Marvel Crisis Protocol, but not so much lately. Um, I think I've got three or four of the miniatures left, not counting the terrain, but probably some kind of record as far as getting stuff finished in a relatively timely manner. I mean, that's good. You got to finish them somehow. Yep. I guess. Or not, and just have a bunch of unfinished 
miniatures hanging around. We've never done that. Unfinished miniatures are just sad, and they don't do as well on the tabletop. This is true. Everyone knows that an unpainted group of miniatures does worse on the tabletop than a painted group of miniatures. Your dice will hate them and will roll low out of spite. It is also known that the most recently painted miniature in a army is the one that's going to roll the worst. Roll worst and or die first. Yes. Simple wargaming fact, and definitely not a superstition that we'll talk about some point when we talk about, like, superstitions in gaming. Beyond just painting stuff, we're going to talk about dice. So, dice. Everybody knows what dice are. Um, if you're not super familiar with role-playing games, you might not know that there are lots of dice beyond just the standard traditional six-sided die. Um, or as role-playing game people will refer to it, a D6. Just dice and then however many sides it has. You can have dice with sides from two to 200, essentially. Or even more. There's I've seen some like a D1000 that's just silly. I think the D like 100 or 120 is like the highest you can go and still get something that's reliably random. I think once you go above that, it's both too hard to read and you get weird results. Over a certain size, it starts to look like a golf ball and not like a die. Yeah. The basic and common dice that you'll see in a game are the D4, which is a pyramid shape, the D6, the cube, the D8, it's an eight-sided sort of pyramid, double pyramid shape, the D10, which is special and the most recent development of these dice. I didn't know that. The D12, which is a um, hexagon pentagram it's a 12-sided polyhedral dice and the big one the d20 which it's a 20-sided polyhedron dice predate recorded history dice have been around pretty much forever as long as we've had any sort of civilization and probably even before that because the earliest dice were bones that basically had symbols scratched on different sides and Archaeologists aren't quite sure if they were used for, like, rituals, divining stuff, or for games, or for both. We have a human desire for randomness. Yeah. Bone dice have been found in archaeological digs in Scotland that have been dated back to around 3000 BCE. Terracotta dice found in the Indus River Valley excavations date from around 2500 BCE. So that's... Pretty far apart and a long time ago. Dice games were played in ancient Greece, in ancient Rome. Uh, they had Rome had six-sided dice with the pips that are remarkably similar to modern six-sided dice that you would find in any board game. Twenty-sided dice have been around since the second century BCE in Egypt. They didn't have numbers; they had symbols. They may have been used for games or some sort of, like, ritual, soothscrying kind of stuff. Uh, dice games were popular in China in the early part of the millennium. 
a popular dice game in Japan, Sugoroku, dates back more than a thousand years. Hey, I actually got a uh, Sugoroku board for uh, Christmas as a kind of like a white elephant-y type thing. Nice. Yeah, that game's more than a thousand years old, uses dice. It's, uh, I think it's a pretty simple game. It's kind of like shoots and ladders, except you're trying to get your samurai uh, to the capital and not have him fall the way, fall all the way down the island. There's that, and there's another version that is played differently. So they have two different types of that. Yeah, there's an, there's an older one that's similar to Backgammon, and then there's the newer one, which is similar to Shoots and Ladders. Uh, but the old one has fallen so far out of memory that uh, the name in general refers to the more, quote, modern-ish uh, version of the game. And a lot of historical dice games were gambling games. You'd use, uh, whoever won would get money. Everyone would put in some amount, you'd place bets. At the end, the winner gets the money. Pretty straightforward. And this was pretty common uh, up until the 20th century wargaming expansion. War games started getting popular at the beginning of the 20th century. H.G. Wells popularized them. One say there were a couple of other famous figures known for it, but they published originally there was a, like sets of rules for playing Napoleonic War era games. You'd have your groups of miniatures, you'd march them up hills, and they started using dice to simulate the element of randomness. The modern dice, the modern polyhedral dice used in role playing games, started to get made in around the 1960s when wargaming started to really pick up. And especially to pull from World War II, as well as further historical wars, and even in the 70s when it started to pull even further back. In 1977, TSR, the makers of Dungeons & Dragons, published the D&D Basics set, which included, for the first time, a five-piece dice set. A D4, a D6, a D8, a D12, and a D20. And a crayon to color in the numbers. Yes, the numbers were not colored in. It came with a white crayon that you were supposed to use to fill in the numbers to make them visible on the dice. This was kind of the start of the role-playing game dice set. In the 80s, the modern D10 was created by Game Science. The D10 is kind of a hard shape to make. If you look at the 10-sided dice in a set of Dungeons & Dragons dice, it's not a shape that would be very easy to come up with. So their sort of slightly offset thing, they figured that out and made that work. So that didn't come out until the 1980s. And once it did, you got them in most D&D dice sets because two D10s allowed you to roll what they call a D percentile, which is you roll one for the 10s column and one for the 1s column, and it works as a D100. I actually just pulled a uh, D percentile out of the bag right now. Yep, it's a nice, easy way to do that without having to have a giant golf ball-sized thing with a hundred different num tiny numbers on it. So yeah, that's dice. Uh, there's a few major dice uh, manufacturers that specifically work on custom poly or polyhedral dice sets designed for Dungeons & Dragons and other role-playing games. Game Science, like we just mentioned. Chessex, 
is a classic one. They produce a lot of dice and a lot of the ones that you'll see in game stores. That's who made my first set of dice. Yeah, I think my first set was also from Chessex. What are some of the others? Um, I have a set of Pride Flag dice that came from Heartbeat dice. Uh, pretty much, if you have a Pride Flag, uh, they make a dice in one of those sets, but they've been sold out for quite a while now. I know that think battle battlefront i think is the name of the company in new zealand that does the flames of war and team yankee games they make their own sets of custom dice that have uh insignias and rondals from various militaries battle dice makes quote high quality dice for advanced squad leader supposedly they're like super precision dice that are you know, machine to the same tolerances that they do, like craps dice and other things you use at casinos. I think that's probably just an excuse to jack up the prices, but you never know. Um, they make dice for just about every faction, every army, pretty much every unit that saw major combat in World War II. I have a set that's the insignia for the Great Patriotic War uh, medal on one side, and then the other dice has a engraving of that famous photo of the commissar calling the rest of the Soviet troops into battle. Um, we got those one year for a Soviet-themed advanced squad leader uh, tournament that we had. In addition to standard sets of dice, there are a lot of custom dice out there. You can get dice made with special symbols on them, and a lot of games can be found that use custom symbols rather than just numbers. Uh, some examples of these, Hero Quest is probably one of the first examples and oldest. Rather than using numbers on their dice, they used six-sided dice with different symbols on each side. Certain ones had a skull symbol to indicate damage. Certain ones had a shield symbol to indicate a block. And then one side has a orc skull symbol that was supposed to indicate the block for monsters, making it so that it's easier to damage the monsters than it is to damage the players, you know, by adjusting the randomness of the dice. The thing to note about that one was that if you turn the die upside down, that orc skull looked a little bit like a bunny rabbit. They will always and forever be the bunny rabbit dice. Yes, that's uh, kind of what people started calling them. And then there are plenty of other games that use custom dice. The games produced by initially Fantasy Flight Games and now Atomic Mass Games for the Star Wars universe use custom dice. Uh, X-Wing, Armada, Legion, and Imperial Assault all use custom dice in a variety of sizes. X-Wing is all uh, D8s, but the dice have specific symbols on them and blank sides. Legion uses D8s and D6s, again, with different symbols on different sides, and this allows them to more precisely change the outcome of events by, instead of just saying, oh, you only hit if you roll this number or above or this number or below or whatever, they have, say, symbols on three sides of the dice that are a hit, a symbol on one side of the dice that is a hit with an additional effect, a symbol on another side of the die that is a hit if you have something to trigger it, and then the other sides are blank. So you have a 5 in 8 chance, rather, of getting a symbol 
and a 3 in 8 chance of getting a blank. So the math is much more complicated and it encourages people to play the game rather than try and just do the math. Crisis Protocol also uses similar dice and uh, I believe Warhammer Underworlds also has two specific sets of dice. It has one for just regular combat and then it has another set that are specifically for magic. Yeah, the proliferation of custom dice as an element of games has been interesting because custom dice can offer a more nuanced effect of how the game is supposed to work. The symbols can be related to things on the cards, which means you need to reference them a little less since you will know that that symbol on the die means this thing rather than having to know that I need a number specific to this unit or this model that matches that. But at the same time, custom dice mean that you have to buy custom dice. It's another way for the company to make a little bit of money. Yeah, I'm always torn on the on the idea of custom dice. Um, they do speed the games up quite a bit, especially if you're uh, working on a system that is not one that uses just straight numbers like Warhammer does compared to, you know, X-Wing where they've got their their own weird math going on. But unless you know the layout of the die, you're pretty much stuck buying the custom dice if you happen to lose them or, you know, 30 years from now. If, for example, Hero Quest, you know, dice were one of the parts that was often missing and then you got to figure out, you know, how do I translate this to a D6 or you pay a ridiculous amount for the original custom dice. And it can be frustrating, but they do speed the game up quite a bit. Yeah, and I will say that these days there are a lot of small com- or small companies out there or individuals out there on Etsy that are producing custom dice for games that are, are out of print or for existing games that just, you know, if you want to buy special custom dice, they'll make them for you, which makes it easier for a person who wants dice from a game that have gone out of print to get them. I know for a fact that Hero Quest dice were available from Etsy to replace them before the new edition came out. And another use of custom dice, the game that we talked about before, Gaslands, which we both very much enjoy, uh, uses custom dice. The skid dice there have symbols, three shifts, a uh, skid, a slide, and a... Hazard. Uh, hazard, yeah. To handle the thing. And you could treat this as... You know, because it's a very simple set, you could treat it as just a D6 and say that on certain numbers this thing happens, but having them visually be on there, and then the fact that the symbols on the dice match the symbols that are on the movement templates and that are used in the book to discuss these effects makes the game move quite a bit faster because you can see the what you have by looking at it rather than by looking at it and then consulting a chart and then figuring out what you have to do. That was always the part of playing old school Warhammer that always slowed me down was never being able to memorize uh, what numbers you needed because everything was kind of on a sliding scale of, you know, X number beats X number, uh, which they seem to have thankfully changed. Nah, it's it's still there for certain things. Weapon skill and uh, strength versus toughness, I believe, are still based on a chart. I think... I think at least in the most recent version now, it's just a straight number plus that you have to 
that you have to go to. At least that's in Kill uh, Kill Team. I don't know if they've taken that all the way over into Ninth Edition, but I know for Kill Team and I think Warcry, it's just a straight straight number roll. Cool. I generally don't look at Warhammer rules, so I wouldn't know. I I just read books from Warhammer to get the lore. I've been going back through the Gaunt's Ghost series, which is fantastic. Makes you want to join the Imperial Guard, except not, because like half the characters get killed in each book. I've got a flashlight, so I'm technically already in the Imperial Guard, I think. I, it, aren't you in the Adeptus Mechanicus? Maybe seconded to the Guard. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's where I would be. I I have to go soothe the machine spirits when the alarm panel starts screaming. Go start rubbing it with sacred oils. Yeah, and speaking of soothing the spirits, dice superstitions. Because, oh boy, there are as many dice superstitions as there are gamers. So some of the common ones are that you shouldn't roll the dice before you need it because you'll use up your good rolls. Yep, leave those dice in the bag. Or that you should have the dice out and roll them to get them warmed up and get all the bad rolls out before you actually use the dice. Mm, too risky. You you risk hitting a 20 on one of those warm-up rolls. No, see, I'm of the opinion that you got to warm up the dice. you got to get them, like, ready to go. So you got to get them out and roll them several times before you start any game. That's why you just roll them around in your hand. That's what I do. Well, yeah, you roll them around in your hand. You roll them on the table to get them interested in the game and get them knowing the situation and, like, ready to play. Other superstitions, the first set of dice you buy is sacred, and you should never throw them away or lose them or mix them up with other sets. What happens if your your first set of sacred dice are cursed? Because I'm pretty sure mine on the D20, I haven't actually tested it to see if it is weighted one way or another, but the D20 from my first set just rolls horribly on a very consistent basis. My first set is long lost. It was the, like, glassy blue Chessex. I had the D12 from it. was, like, the only die that remained after a while. And even that's been lost at this point. I think up until maybe 2015, that was the only set of specialized dice that I had. I had a set of Warhammer dice that I got at a tournament one year because I forgot to bring my set of D6s, so I paid too much money for a set of black and white dice that uh, I had that for a while, and they got stored with the D20s in their little tiny box they came in. But then once I started getting into war games and other games more consistently, that's when the dice started proliferating like tribbles. Other superstitions. You should always lay your die with the highest number facing up. Yep, I'll agree with that one. Or you should always lay your die with the lowest number facing up. No, that's that's bad mojo. Yeah, no, highest number should be up. The die should be used to resting with the 20 on the top so that when you roll it, it remembers what it should be doing. Yep. You should never allow anyone else to roll your dice. Just smack their hand right away from that dice cup. That's why you have the bag of plebeian dice that anybody who didn't bring their own dice, they can roll from that one. That one's already been befouled, so they can use those dice. Yeah, I'm with that. You should have a set of dice that is your personal dice. These are just mine. I'm the only one who uses them. And then a bunch of extra dice that everyone can use if they forget them or 
if you're a dungeon master running a game for people who don't already own their own dice. You have specific dice for specific situations. You have certain dice that are good for attacking, certain ones that are good for saving throws, etc. I don't think I've encountered that, but I do have different sets of dice that I use for different games or different scenarios. Dice should be tested. You should keep a new dice separated from old dice, and you should roll them and like figure out the their average and how well they do and sort them by, you know, if they actually roll 20s or not. And if they don't, you should throw them away. It's like when you bring home a new fish, you have to keep them quarantined in their own tank for a while, make sure they don't infect the rest of the aquarium. When I played X-Wing quite heavily, I would roll all my dice at the beginning of the game and sort out which ones were consistently rolling symbols and which ones weren't. And then set aside, like, the ones that weren't rolling symbols and put them back in the bag and only take out as many as I needed of the 12 to 20 dice that I had. Only bring out the ones that were consistently rolling symbols in my pregame tests. That could be, like, 15% of the reason that I'm terrible at X-Wing. Is that you, you, you aren't treating the dice well? Yeah, they all, they all just look the same to me, so I never really put much thought into them. You gotta test them before you play the game and only use the ones that are actually working that day. It's like doing your pre-flight checks. Yes, it's exactly like that. And if your dice start going cold, you swap them out for new ones. That That's an important figure of this. If they start rolling blanks a lot, you swap them out for a fresh set of dice that haven't used up all their luck for the day. Just don't blow on your dice before you roll them. It's a pandemic, people. Yeah, no, that, that that's straight out at this point. Dice jails. Uh, dice that are rolling poorly should be quarantined or imprisoned or shamed until they learn how to uh, play better. I need a little 3D printed dunce cap. That's probably more the level of what my printer can produce rather than a full jail. I've seen some nice little jails, uh, 3D printed or made of wood or whatever. Little jails that you, like, drop the dice in when they roll poorly and they need to be punished. I should definitely get some of those before I start playing in public again. There are a number of rituals for cleaning or priming dice before use. From leaving them in special places to uh, taking them to say, a, gra a certain gravestone in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. I had a D20 that I dunked in holy water at the Vatican once. You need to, you need to get another one and see if you can get the Pope himself to uh, roll it. Yeah, I th that might be tricky. It was a different Pope at the time, but, you know, I dunked it in water at the Vatican and a few other, like, major churches. That was a good die. I, I think it's sto in storage somewhere. I gotta find that again. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if I have any other pilgrimage spots other than Gary Gygax's grave to take to my uh, D20s to. Maybe I could ex maybe I could take him to work and like expose him to some lightning. Do like Franken dice. I suspect that'll work better with metal dice than plastic dice if you want to use them after you've exposed them to electricity. Yeah, I don't think I have any metal dice. Should. I will say uh, when we were talking about dice manufacturers have you heard of, uh, I think it's Dwarven Forge? Yes, I've seen some of their stuff. Yeah, I want some of them uh, fancy dice, and I will someday save up the $3,000 for the full set of polyhedral dice made from retired medical skeletons, so then I will have a uh, helpful dice ghost. Yeah, or, or it could be an unhelpful dice ghost, in which case 
maybe don't bring it to game sessions. That, that'll be the one I really want to screw with the players. And I guess speaking of exposing dice to lightning, certain cursed dice, you know, if you have a d20 that constantly rolls poorly, it rolls ones when you need a 20, it fails your death saves, it, like, it, it never does things. Cursed dice must be destroyed is a superstition. Would you agree with that? Maybe, but I'm also in the the quandary of having a die that is both cursed and part of the sacred original set. So I think I'm kind of stuck with it. For the for the most part, these these dice have been relegated to ceremonial purposes. I don't think I actually ever use them anymore just because I know that they roll so poorly. Yes. They're like some kind of like sacred or cursed like chaos artifact. Something that the ecclesiarchy has behind glass on on holy terra that you can you can look at it, but you can't touch it. Also, lucky dice. If you find a die that's particularly lucky, you should name it. You should only use it when you really need to, and you should keep it in a special place. And, you know, you can talk to it, because it's your special dice. I have uh, right here Frosty, the lucky die. Uh, we were playing a game of Frostgrave, and my wizard was trying to disable another wizard that was going towards an objective that I needed to win the game and roll a critical hit and killed the other wizard outright. So that left my opponent without his wizard and just a bunch of random minions. So this dice is forever lucky. Was that the one where when you rolled survival at the end of the game, the wizard did not come back? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, so that die not only killed the wizard in the game, but killed them in the campaign. Yep. That, that's a good die, yeah. And you've named it, so you're following that superstition. Yep. We still talked a little about metal dice, and I guess bone dice, but there is a whole range of cool custom dice made by cool dice makers uh, that you can find on Etsy. You can find these people on Twitter as well. And they make neat dice. They make very pretty dice. It's fairly easy to get a set of dice molds and the epoxy resin stuff to make them now. Uh, but it's quite hard to make ones that look good and are clearly legible and, you know, are worth buying, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. There's also 3D printed dice. There's custom metal dice. I've seen some terrifying D4s that look like they're actually caltrops. <laughs> nice. I, I don't know how well I would trust a 3D printed die, especially one that's made out of resin, because uh, that resin is pretty brittle. So I imagine the first roll, it's just going to shatter or chip. That's uh, another reason why I stay away from uh, gemstone or mineral dice. Even though I really, really want some dice that are made out of lapis, I know the first time I roll it, it's just going to hit a bad spot and just absolutely shatter. Yeah, I think you need to get dice made out of diamond for that, because they'll just break whatever they land on. Just get a, just get a bunch of dice made of industrial diamonds. Yeah, I'd say go for it. If you if you have a set of dice made of industrial diamonds, and you want us to, like, give you a shout-out here on the show, send them to us. Yes, send us all your expensive dice. Or even cheap dice that you, you know, want to send to us. You can contact us on Twitter. Send us a DM. You can contact us on our website. Send us an email. You can send a trained messenger pigeon to our location. 
if you're going to send me the ones made of human bones, it needs to come with that certificate of authenticity from uh, Dwarven Forge, because otherwise I might be a, a, an accessory to serial murder. Yes, and please also do not send us any dice made out of endangered animals. Those are highly illegal. Is that actually a thing that exists, or is that just a bit? I haven't seen any, but I would expect that to be something that will exist in the future. Well, I guess I guess you could make dice out of ivory. That doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, do not make dice out of ivory from white rhinos. That's bad. I guess if you wanted ivory dice, you could make really tiny ones out of uh, whistler teeth off of elk, since that's technically ivory. Sure, do that. Another another set I want are those little tiny uh, precious metal ones that are made out of like gold and silver, and they're just absolutely microscopic, but they are technically like solid gold. That's certainly a set of dice for you. I'm, I'm fine with just plastic and resin dice. Um, I like the pretty ones, but more than that, I like dice that are easy to read the numbers off of. Always helpful. I have seen a lot of cool sets that are basically unreadable, and that ruins them for me because they need to be usable rather than just a display item. Yeah, I got my wife a nice set that are uh, fall-themed, and they have, like, metallic uh, fall leaves inside the acrylic. And the acrylic is kind of like orange, but for some reason they went with uh, metallic copper inlay for the numbers, so it's really hard to read them. Yeah. Uh, there's also, I've seen some very nice, like, Lovecraftian Cthulhu-themed dice. Oh, yeah, those are cool, but so hard to read. And they're cool sets, but... The inscription around the numbers, the little, like, Cthulhu Lovecraft pattern stuff, makes the numbers basically impossible to read, especially if the lighting where you're playing isn't perfect. So they're not super useful for an actual game, which kind of ruins the effect for me. I will say, though, as far as legibility goes, I hate with a passion the D6s that have the actual Arabic numerals on them instead of the pips. It's just absolute heresy. Okay, so we're taking that stand. We're, we're dying on this hill? Yes. Pips are superior to numbers on dice? Yes, they are. Pips are will, will always be superior. I think that for wargaming, you are correct, and that you should be using pips. I think that for role-playing games, the numbers make sense, because you are probably going to be using other dice that also have numbers on them, and you want to be consistent. Well, I'm, I'm fine with the numerals on the other dice. It's just for some reason, just the D6 that I hate the numerals on. I don't know why. For a war game, just give me a bunch of D6s with pips. Or give me other dice. Build your war game around D10s or D12s. Don't be a coward. Uh, there actually is one that I have a book for called Tomorrow's War that uses a combination of D6, D8, D10, and D12, depending on how skilled your troops are and what they're armed with they'll roll with different sets of dice which in theory is cool because it you know if your dudes are better they have a much wider range of options of what they can do but it makes calculating what you need to roll turn by turn incredibly difficult at least for me because i was always constantly forgetting who is what rank and what rank rolls which dice and after a while started to kind of think, uh, maybe it's just better if you have it, some kind of numerical math that, you know, you're all rolling the same dice, but they have other stats that change that outcome. Uh, I will note games like A Billion Sons 
use different dice for different ships, but it's based on the size of the ship. And it's still aiming for the same number for the most part. It's just that the armament on larger ships has a better chance of hitting thing on the smaller ships. And then smaller ships, you're trying to roll, I think, under a target number for dodging. Smaller ships have a better chance of it. Whereas larger ships, because they roll larger dice, have a harder time dodging. Yeah, that's that's a fairly simple and straightforward way to do it for Tomorrow's War. If you have, like, veterans, they'll roll, like, a D12. But if they're also, like, undersupplied, uncoordinated, panicking, or whatnot, their die that they can roll will change. So there's so much bookkeeping that it's kind of like, what's what's even the point if they're not going to roll the same die consistently? Yeah, that does sound like it can be complicated. So I think to wrap up our talk on dice... Buy more dice. Become a math. Become a dice goblin. Uh, math rocks. They go clickety clackety. I keep. I keep looking at dice, but somehow I've managed to not buy any for a while. The last one I got was a set of Vegas branded craps dice. I'm just gonna jingle my bag of dice here for a minute. There's mine. Yep, that's dice. Jingling my sack. Yeah, and here I can I can see at least three sets of polyhedral dice. Um, I have some custom dice from a game called Dice Miner, which is an interesting one where you have a little mountain of dice and each player takes turns taking dice off the mountain, and depending on which type of dice you take um, affects how you score. This particular one has a, a beer mug on the sixth side. Um I've got some from one of our local gaming clubs, a couple from uh, local game stores that have branded dice, uh, one with a rooster on the sixth side that is for the French army in uh, Flames of War, and a bunch of other World War II themed ones. There's Balkan Kreutz, uh, Star, Hammer, and Sickle. Good times. Yeah, dice. Have lots of them. Use lots of them. Roll them even when you don't need to. Hey, natural 20. ABR, always be rolling. Yes. Oh, hey, here's a uh, here's a scatter dice from Warhammer. That one hasn't been used in a decade and a half, maybe. So, at the end of our podcast, we have a segment we like to call Board Game Corner, where we talk about a board game we like. This week, because we've spent a lot of time talking about dice, we're going to talk about a game that uses no dice. Touché. And that's Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride, originally published in 2004, is a Euro-style game uh, from a German company about building railroads. Train good. It does two to five players in the base game. You essentially draw cards that allow you to place trains across the board, and you ha each player has secret ticket destination tickets that give them points for connecting two cities on the map. They can be cities that are very far away, like New York and Los Angeles, or they can be cities that are quite close, like Los Angeles and Seattle. You use your trains and the cards that you have to 
build links between various cities and try to build across, you know, the United States. The game has had a ton of sequels and add-ons and additional versions. Um, there's a couple of anniversary versions, a Europe one, a Nordic countries one, a German one, a rails and sails version that is covers the whole world that has you do boats to travel across stuff and railroads a one designed for like younger kids called first journey and then a bunch of expansions that just adds extra maps and extra i think extra cards as well asia india switzerland africa united kingdom pennsylvania france the old west poland italy japan any country that has a railroad probably has a map for this game. I found it very fun when I played it recently. I feel like the card system and the system for playing the trains out makes it possible to spend a lot of time on strategy and a lot less time on randomness because it's the variety of things happening is something that you can almost always do something of interest on your turn. Unlike some dice-based games where if you roll the dice and get the wrong number, you don't get a turn, essentially. Looking at you, Catan. With Ticket to Ride, you can always do something on your turn. And I enjoy that. It The turns are also rather short, so it keeps the game moving. And the map is visually interesting, and the different colored pieces for the different players make it fun to try and figure out who's going where and what their plans are. Ed, I believe you've played the game as well. Yeah, I've played Ticket to Ride a fair bit. I actually first started playing it on Xbox Live quite a while ago. Found it a lot of fun. The uh, I like the strategy element of just holding on to the cards and trying to kind of get everything that you need all at once rather than building out piece by piece. That's just kind of how I tend to play it. Um, I also try to go for like really ballsy, gigantic routes that may or may not pay off in the long run. I think I've tried to play a couple of the expansions. Um, I think Europe was one of them. I remember it had some weird rules for like trying to cross the Bosphorus and going from like the Nordic countries to continental Europe that I never quite wrapped my head around. And at one point, I did want the uh, anniversary edition that has the little molded train cars with each color being a different type of car. But it's like, do I really want to spend $100 on a game that might get played once a year? Maybe not. But especially if you have if you have people in your group or family members who aren't really super into heavyweight board games, it's a, a good one to go with. Yeah, I would recommend it. Again, if it's great for groups that aren't super heavyweight. It's great for groups that want a game that moves rather quickly. It's good for groups... I, I would say it's quite good for, like, younger kids as well. Mm-hmm. Kids, uh, pre-teens, maybe? I wouldn't go bigger than that. They need to come out with, like, an edgelord edition to draw in the teenagers. Uh, post-apocalyptic Mad Max trains, I guess. That works. But yeah, I enjoyed it. I would recommend it. I don't own it myself at the moment. I might buy one in the future. Though, maybe not for a while. 
it's not terribly expensive in pretty much any place that even vaguely sells board games, you'll be able to find it. You can find it at normal uh, department stores, Targets or Walmart kind of places. But uh, maybe check your local game store first because they'll be happy to tell you about it and they might know things about it that the person working at Walmart and Target doesn't. And they're more than happy to take your money. Yes. So that's the end of our show. Ed, you got any things you want to tell the people to, this week? Uh, buy more dice. Feed the addiction. All right, buy more dice. I think, as always, join a union if you can. Uh, or start a union if you don't have one to join. IWW, world domination. Buy dice. Um, don't leave your D4s on the floor unless you want to hurt people. Yeah, D4, D4 bad. Keep your friends close and your D20s closer. Yeah, because otherwise they're going to steal it and try and roll it. Yeah, and, you know, keep playing games. And thanks for listening. Have fun.